All right, well, we are looking forward to hearing uh, from uh, the New Hope for the Future team and the ideas that they have about how we as a church can uh, think about our future and be committed to our future. Uh, And we're thankful to hear the hearts of this team over the next several weeks. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can turn to Judges chapter two. That's where we'll be this morning. Now, we've been in Mark's gospel since April of 2021, so April 11th of of last year. And we will wrap up the last three chapters of Mark's gospel gospel uh, starting in six weeks, but we are taking a six-week break uh, just to focus on something that is very important, something that the Lord has made very uh, clear to me that he's uh, really uh, spoken to a lot of our leaders in our church about, and I think something that has been very important to this church for a long time. Uh, uh, Several years ago, I had the opportunity to serve on a task force for the Florida Baptist Convention. That's an organization that represents about 3,000 churches that we partner with for um, a lot of uh, state uh, missions causes. And the the task force was given the responsibility of looking at uh, the Florida Baptist Convention, uh, figuring out why it was on the decline, why it was having financial problems, and to really talk about what the future looked like for the Florida Baptist Convention. And I remember at our first meeting, the chairman of our team was a man named Danny DeArmas. He was the uh, exec- is the executive pastor of First Baptist Church of Orlando, and he shared a story about his father. His father came from Cuba. And his father was committed, even though they were moving to America and changing their citizenship, that they would not lose their Cuban heritage. And he was insistent that his children would, part of that is that they would know and speak Spanish. And so, as he intended, all four of his children were able to speak Spanish fluently. Well, I don't remember the exact number, but Danny then told us that there were 15 grandchildren. And only one of them spoke Spanish. Now, I think this is representative of what happens in the church, where there's a great move of God, a great commitment from people to value the things of God, and even maybe to equip the next generation. But then we quickly see that passion, that commitment fade away. If you do not believe this to be true, I will just share a few statistics with you. One is this. Today, over 60% of young people who grow up in Christian churches are not a part of the church by the age 20. That means over half of the young people who are in our church statistically will not be committed to the church or Christ at the age of 20. Among millennials, The number of people who do not consider themselves to be a part of any church is 52%. That means for the first time, more than half of a generation says, hey, we do not put a priority on church. And there are shifts within the church. Close to half of professing Christians say that Christianity and homosexuality are not in conflict with one another. Every five years, the number of Christians who believe that abortion should be outright legal continues to grow. And those are just the two loud issues, but many issues that were by far the position of Christians for a long period of time and are indeed the biblical view have shifted drastically. Now, as we look at Judges chapter two this morning, I think we will see a situation that arose early in the life of Israel that is a dire warning for us today. 
Now, just to give you a little background, the Israelites wander in the wilderness after being delivered from Egypt for 40 years. As as they enter into the promised land, Moses dies and Joshua leads the new generation into the promised land. They defeat Jericho. They win in the battle of Ai and they divide the land amongst the people. And, And idolatry actually begins to increase from the land among them. And Joshua, God uses Joshua to call them out for their idolatry. And there is a renewal of the covenant. And I want you to look at what takes place in this revival amongst the people of Israel in Judges chapter two, beginning in verse six. It says, when Joshua dismissed the people after the renewal of the covenant and repentance, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. In his book, For a New Generation, Lee Kriker points out that we do not have insight into exactly what Joshua and his generation did or did not do to have an impact on the faith of their children and grandchildren. But we know that the end result was horrifying. It says, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And while we tend to believe that morals are neutral, and that a lack of faith doesn't have really any implications on people. That is not true now, nor was that true then. And look at what begins to happen in Israel in verse 11. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the angel of the, angel of the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. And we'll see throughout the history of Israel, this cycle repeat itself where a group of people will become committed to the way of the Lord, and yet the very next generation doesn't know the work of the Lord or who the Lord is in the same way. We see this as the generations go back and forth in the book of Judges, ultimately crying for a king, even though that wasn't God's desire, but they they call for a king, not according to the standards of God, but according to the standards of man. And Saul leads them further into idolatry, but David comes, and with a renewed passion, he leads a generation to have a renewed passion for God. But even as the kingship is set up over Israel, we see a people of God searching his heart and repentant, and then the very next king comes along and the next generation comes along, and they're not repentant. We see this even as they rise to prosperity. We see this when they're in captivity. And we see ultimately God condemning Israel 
for not having a passion for God the way that they once did. And what we see in this text here in Judges chapter two is a shocking example of the importance of intergenerational discipleship and the dire consequences of God's people not prioritizing intergenerational discipleship. Now, what do I mean by intergenerational discipleship? Well, discipleship should be a word that is familiar to every Christian because it's a part of what it means to be a Christian. We are called to make disciples. We should actively, with our life, be helping people to follow and learn who Jesus is and the ways of Jesus. That's what discipleship is. And so by attaching the word intergenerational to that, I mean that discipleship should be taking place amongst God's people between generations, where an older generation is teaching the next generation about who God is and the work that he has done. Now, a lot of you are very new to our church, and so I want to give you a little bit of history about uh, our church that, that precedes me. Over a decade ago now, there was a, a group that was commissioned by the church called the Young Families Task Force, and this church was representative of the desire from our church to, to, to recognize at that point that the church was aging, the church was declining, and they need, we needed to figure out what to do to reach young families, and so ultimately from that task force, many things came about, but the most notable one is the renovation of our facility and the building of an awesome children's building. And, and the point was to show fam young families, hey, you are valued here. And, and we want you to be a part of what we're doing here. And so God really began to stir. And, and even as that building was built, grow the church and reach more young families. And, and that same year, our pastor at the time, Mike McGue, which again, some of you don't know Mike, but Mike led this church for 10 years and, a, and, and was instrumental in us getting to the place as a church where we realized, hey, we have to be intentional about reaching young families and engaging young families. He felt like that the church should call another pastor. And so he announced his retirement that same year, and that ultimately led to me, and the verdict is still out on that decision, being the pastor of this church almost five years ago. And since then, a lot of things have changed. And I would say this, we've grown a lot. The church has been successful in reaching young families, and that is worth celebrating. Our attendance numbers on Sundays have went from the low 500s to even over the summer this year, mid-800s to high-800s. Over a five-year period, the church has moved from just over 20% of the congregation being adults and children under the age of 40 to over half of the makeup of our church being people who are under the age of 40. On an average Sunday, even during the summer, we have anywhere from 250 to 300 children and students on our campus. And this year, we're on track to see more people baptized, most of those young adults, than we have in 20 years. Praise God for this. And we can, we can celebrate that. And, and praise God for the vision that Pastor Mike and many of our members who've been here for a long time had. But in light of today's text, I want to draw attention to something that is very important. Consistent with many churches 
there is a wide gap between the commitment levels of our older adults and the commitment level of our younger adults. I just don't mean the giving amount because that makes sense, especially those who are entering the empty nesting stage at the height of their income, they're going to give more, they have more freedom in their giving, even our senior adults who, a lot of them are on a more fixed income but they do have more freedom in their giving. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about the level of commitment to serve, the level of commitment to saying I'm a part of this church no matter what, through thick and thin. Across our country, there is not the same commitment level between senior adults and younger adults, and that is true in this church. And additionally, while many of our older members of the church are supportive of the changes that have taken place to reach young families, and they celebrate what God has done, most of our older members have taken a primarily passive role in the engagement of young families. Now, the statistics I showed you earlier, that I explained earlier, are not just about whether or not your grandkids appreciate the Bill Gaither band or whether or not the VeggieTales have sold out or not. There is a much more serious issue here. There is much more at stake. And I don't think we realize that we are as committed to it as we should be. In fact, just one small indicator is when we did a survey to our church family about intergenerational discipleship, we had 200 and something people actually fill out that survey. And of those 200 and something people, 76% of our church said that they value being a part of a multi-generational church. But less than half said that having relationships between the generations is very important. This example we have here in Judges chapter 2 shows the importance of intergenerational discipleship and the dire consequences of God's people not prioritizing it. Now, if you're taking notes, you need to note this. There is a tension between historical intergenerational discipleship and the current culture of the church. There's a tension between historical intergenerational discipleship, what intergenerational discipleship has been, and the current culture of the church, not just our church, but the church in general. Most people and most churches are not functioning in this way where the generations are interacting with one another. To, in my opinion, most people treat being multi-generational like they treat having a treadmill in their house. Here's what I mean by that. They want it to be there in case they ever need it, but in reality, clothes are usually being hung on the treadmill. And I think that's how most people view being a part of a multi-generational church. I'm glad that younger people are here, or I'm glad that older people are here. I want them here, but I actually don't interact with it or use it that often. Now, this is not how things have always been. If you look to the Bible, what you will see is that intergenerational discipleship is described and prescribed in the Bible. Intergenerational discipleship is described and prescribed in the Bible. If you read the Bible, the Bible is either descriptive or it's prescriptive. It either gives you an example of something, and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it that way, even though a lot of times these examples really encourage us to do it that way. 
But also sometimes the Bible is prescriptive and it says to do it this way. And what I would tell you is that when you read the Bible, you will see a lot of descriptions about what intergenerational discipleship looks like and the value of it. And you will even see specific instructions on intergenerational discipleship, and we'll be looking at that more over the next several weeks. In fact, there are only two books of the Bible where intergenerational discipleship is not prescribed or described, and um, it is the biblical model. And this is how the church also has functioned for 1,900 years of its existence. There's something we need to recognize. Our individualistic culture is a departure from societies geographically and historically and from the context of the Bible. In his book, When the Church Was a Family, Joseph Hellerman says this, throughout most of history, Christians have operated with a collectivist view of society instead of a modern individualistic view. This is what he means. Today, most people treat church like they treat buying a pair of pants. What cost me the least, what is most comfortable for me, and what looks the best and impresses my friends. That's the church I want. But this is not how church has been viewed throughout history, nor is it in the Bible. It is where am I going to be shaped to be more like Christ And where am I going to contribute to the shaping of others to be more like Christ? And when I join a church, I am submitting to those who I am a part of the church. I don't mean just the pastors or leaders. I mean the church family. And so now there is this shared responsibility for helping others to become more like Christ. I'm not only concerned with me and my family becoming more like Christ. I'm also concerned with others. Now, the primary way that the church indoctrinated people or discipled people for throughout most of her history has been catechesis. Catechesis is a formal training program to help people understand basic doctrines. Historical evidence of catechesis is found in church programs and manuals as early as the didash. And so the Catholic church still, you know, puts a great emphasis on catechism, and that comes from the early roots of the church. The Reformation, which led to the modern-day Protestant movement, gave new life to discipleship, and it separated Christian families from some of what was labeled as erring methodology of the Catholic church at that time. But J.I. Packer points out in his book about Christian history The reformers saw a need as well for catechesis, specifically of younger members. And so this was implemented, and the responsibility was shared between pastors or church leaders and fathers, typically. Now, whenever Europeans came over from Europe to America, they brought with them some of the customs and traditions that were established in the society they left. So the formation of the church in America, we see catechesis as a part of what they're doing. Now look, listen to what happens. America develops and a mindset shift takes place. And this results in a greater sense of personal autonomy and a rejection of external authority. And this shift, I'm not saying it's altogether bad, but it resulted in democratic forms of government and it resulted in a more personalized view of spirituality. 
Now, the family unit remained the primary method for teaching and discipleship of children. But over time, that became increasingly less and less in step with a congregation's authority. And here's what happened. As America moved away from the authority of the church, it eventually moved in more and more away from the traditional view of family. So as Americans, specifically Christians, but Americans in general, moved away from the authority of the church, so Americans were no longer saying, hey, church family, help give us instruction, we saw that in our culture, families begin to have a less traditional view of family. Now, while there are still some catechisms and covenants among Baptists and other denominations, what happened is congregations begin to shift their methods to become less rigid for their purpose of retaining members. So they said, hey, people aren't coming. They're not taking this seriously. We have to make this easier so people will keep coming to our churches. And then radical advancements in technology, larger homes, the rise of two-income families, the rise of divorce, led generations to become more and more segregated. Families, which used to consist of multiple generations under one roof, are no longer a reality. And the amount of time that parents spend with their children has decreased. So there was a time not that long ago where you would have grandparents, children, you know, the, and, and then the grandchildren all living under the same roof, like in Willy Wonka, if you've ever seen that. They're all living under the same roof. And yet, today, that's never the case, hardly ever. And we've got technology, we've got bigger homes, families are busy, they're spending less time together at the meal table, less time intentionally together. Now, I will say this, we've corrected this a little bit over the last 20 years, because there was a time when, you know, there was a movement, children are best seen, not heard, and I do think, you know, we've moved back the way we should a little bit on this, but not anywhere near where we were before the shift occurred. And here's what we need to be aware of. Churches are often operating with the objectives of what works to get people in the doors and what keeps them coming instead of saying, what has Christ called us to do? Specifically, when it comes to intergenerational discipleship, Holly Allen and Christine Ross, no relation, write in the book, Intergenerational Christian Formation. The church went along with the cultural shift, and there arose the practice of segregating age groups from one another into silos to accomplish Christian education. So if you were to go to a church building in America 50, 60 years ago, there were two buildings. There was the sanctuary and there was the education space. And if you were a rich church, you had a fellowship hall. That was it. Today, we have a children's building and a student building and sometimes a middle school building and a high school building and a college building and a young adult building and a median adult building and a senior adult building. And, and you could keep going on and on. And, and functionally, what has happened is, and we have an image here, is most church put age groups into silos where they have programs 
that are designed for them. And functionally, you could just stay in that silo and hardly ever interact with anybody from any other age group. You got, oh, go back up, sorry. You got the young families. You got the students and their families. You got the empty nesters. And then you have the senior adults. And again, they're just kind of in their silo doing their thing. But that's not the model we see in the Bible. The model is that the church is a family. And so we should view church more like a house. And so in the house, you might have your own rooms that you want to go back to. If you notice, I gave our senior adults the master bedroom. (laughs) But you go back and you do your own things and you walk with your people, but then we're in the living room doing life together and we're headed to the kitchen serving together. This is the model of church, that we are not always isolated with our own peers all the time, but we are interacting together. And the shocking example that we see in Judges shows the importance of this and the dire consequences if we don't prioritize it. And I would say just looking at our culture in this country shows the importance of this and the dire consequences of not doing this. And the solution is this. The solution is a commitment to the church being a family that is committed to its future. The solution is a commitment to the church being a family that is committed to its future. This is the biblical picture. Now, I think what's happened is a lot of churches have said, yes, we do need to reach the next generation. We need to reach people that don't go to church. And yet we've forgotten that image of being a family. I remember this was like a popular, you know, image uh, probably 30 years ago. I saw people wearing hats and stuff like this. It, you know, Actually, I didn't really see anybody wearing it, but I, we were told about it. Uh, and you can put this image on the screen here of be ye fishers of men. You catch them and he'll clean them. Now, the church growth movement isn't as cheesy as that anymore, but there is this mentality, and I, and I think it's well-intentioned. Hey, you reach people and then Jesus will clean them, right? So they can be messy, messy people come to church, that's okay, they don't need to be cleaned up first, Jesus will clean them. So you're right, we need to reach messy people, it's okay that they don't have their life figured out, but we're wrong if we don't think that God has called us to do the cleaning. That doesn't come from the Bible. And I think so much we've said, let's create programs Let's design worship services. Let's do church in a way that reaches lost people. And then they will somehow eventually get discipled. Instead of taking the responsibility that we're supposed to do that. Hellerman says in his book, by driving a wedge between soteriology, that means you know, the understanding of what it means to get saved, and ecclesiology, that means how we do church, So by driving a wedge between people coming to know Christ and how we do church, we have removed from the gospel what the Bible views as the sanctification process, namely commitment to God's group. It is consistent with the teaching on the concept of the new identity in Christ to teach the role of the Christian family. Jesus teaches that his family is the ones who do the will of God. This is in response to when people are identifying his earthly family in Mark chapter three. Now, this does not neglect the value of the people who are biologically related to us, but it does clarify how Christians now view family relationships and how we view the church. Upon conversion, Christians gain a new father 
and a new set of brothers and sisters. The imagery of the body of Christ and the bride of Christ served to support the idea that when one thinks of the family of God, we ought not to think of anything that is less than a commitment that we're making to our earthly family. And fostering this level of commitment is of the highest importance in Christian discipleship and leadership. The early Christian would have understood this to be true, not only positionally, but relationally. That is a reasonable description of everyday life as a believer. The early church understood this new family as something that affected them not only conceptually, but practically. Their identity as the family of God is why they were able to be devoted to one another in the way that is described in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. This explains why Paul instructed Titus to have older men teaching younger men and older women teaching younger women. The early church considered themselves to be responsible to this new family. The church should be organized according to the reality that they are, we are the family of God. And there are many implications on this for the believer. Empathy for members of our church family, Romans chapter 12. Financial support of those who are working for God's mission in our church family, 2 Corinthians 9. Protection of the weaker members of the body, 1 Corinthians 12. Confession of sin to one another, James 5. Accountability to one another, Matthew 18. And prioritizing each other, Galatians chapter 6. These verses, along with numerous other New Testament passages, support the idea of the Christian's identity in Christ is woven together with his or her identity in the community of Christ. Each of us is given the spirit for the manifestation of the common good. God does not equip us and empower us just to live our best life now, he equips us so that others would live their best life. A Christian's obedience leads to their involvement in the family of God and guides that involvement. If we are obeying Christ, then we understand we are to be committed to a church family and we understand what that commitment looks like. According to the church, excuse me, according to the scripture, the church has an obligation to nurture those who are already believers and to build them up to maturity in the faith. And this expresses itself in the commitment to the family of God, and this is vital to Christian discipleship. And while this is not exclusively intergenerational, this nurturing happens with the presence of engaging relationships of multiple generations. Members of the church should not be content in only serving those who fit their demographic, are only developing relationships with those who are in the same stage of life. Members of the church should not be content in only serving those who fit their demographic or only developing relationships with those who are in the same stage of life. You need peer connections, but God has designed it to be much more than that. Now I'll tell you this. For a church that says we're gonna emphasize this commitment, it is likely that God they will see pruning of the church. But it will undoubtedly lead to a healthier church who functions more like the church was intended to be. Here's what I mean by that. If we are saying, hey, the church isn't just a pair of pants. It's not just about what's comfortable, what looks the best, and costs the least amount. It's about giving your life to this thing that God sent his son to die for People will say, well, there's churches where it's easier and you're not asking that and I can have a few friends and I can be good. That will happen. But we do not need to ask ourselves what keeps the most people coming or gets the most people in the door, but we need to ask ourselves 
what did Christ die for? And what has Christ called us to? The solution is a commitment to the church being a family that is committed to its future. A healthy family always has its future in mind. And so we are thinking, how do we continue to pass down what God has done? We as a church, God has worked in an incredible way. I, I, I hope you savor, if you've been a part of our church, just the goodness of what God has done in this church family. But we must continually ask, what does God want to do? How, how can we be intentional about the next generation? Lee Kreiker, in the book I referenced earlier for A New Generation, says, church revitalization is often defined as the process needed to turn a declining church into a growing church. That definition makes sense, but can lead only to a temporary season of improved church health because it does not empathize reaching the next generation. I contend that we need to think in terms of perpetual church revitalization. So we need to think of ourselves as a perpetual church revitalization. That we are continually examining what we're doing and how we're doing it to be healthy. And look, there is a tension here because older generations and younger generations always struggle to understand one another. My children watch people play video games on TV. I don't understand it. I will never understand it. That tension will always exist. If you think that generations are not gonna have tensions in areas where they don't understand each other, then you are living in fantasy land. But we must prioritize this. And I think one of the tensions for those who have come from a strong church and strong faith is the people who they knew, who the young people don't appreciate. And they wanna honor the people who've come before them. And I absolutely agree with that. But here's what Lee Kreiker says, and I, I agree with this more than anything else. The best way to honor the past is by planning for the future so that your church continues to have a positive impact on future generations. If you really wanna honor the money and time and energy that people poured into the church, then you gotta continue to be focused on the mission of Christ and discipling the next generation. I am not suggesting that we jump on every trend we are trying to pass down our faith, not exchange our faith so we feel validated by young people coming to our church. We see this in so many churches that become a mile wide and an inch deep. They're just trying to maintain some image to stay relevant. The gospel is relevant. The scripture is relevant. It's life-giving. We don't have to try to be cool. In fact, we're not. But... It means that we're trying to pass down our faith. It doesn't mean we're trying to preserve our way of doing things so that we feel validated even though everything else around us is changing. And we see this in some churches that you walk in and you think, I guess they think that when Jesus comes back, the 1950s are gonna come back and they're ready because everything here looks like it's from 70 years ago. Look, People are always arguing about how to do church and I, and I feel like it goes like this. Hey, well, the church doesn't need to be a nightclub. I agree, but it also doesn't need to be a country club. 
You're getting into this you know, counter-narrative of how to do church. The meta-narrative is be the family of God that he has called us to be and engage. And this tension between how to do church and the generations will always exist. But here's what I'm telling you. It will be manageable and I would suggest beautiful if we are engaged relationally. The dire warning in Judges chapter two and the shocking example we see in our country shows us how important this is. And my hope is that our church, specifically those who are maturing in the faith or are mature in the faith, would embrace what the psalmist says in Psalm 78, verse one through four. It says this, give ear, O my people, to my teaching, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. We will not hide the things of God. Even as difficult and as scary as the culture can be, we are going to make the magnificence of our God the main thing that we leave behind. I, told, I texted Danny DeArmas saying, hey, thank you for sharing that story about your dad. Um, you know, all those years ago, I'm actually gonna share it with our church in a few weeks. And, and he texted me back and he said, since then his dad has said this, I started with the wrong goal in mind. I thought my task was to raise godly children when in fact it should have been to raise godly children who would raise godly children. What would my dad have done differently, Danny says, if his goal was for his kids to be able to teach their kids Spanish? There would have been a different level of intensity and purpose. I would have been the instrument of his work, not just the object of his work. The same goes for the gospel. Jesus' entire earthly ministry was about equipping people he knew to deliver the good news to people he would never meet on earth. And we need to understand this about our lives. We are not just the object of God's purpose. We are the instrument of God's purpose. How incredible is it that God in his grace saves us and that's where our joy is. And that he invites us to be a part of the work of really reconciliation he does in other people's lives. We should be committed to that. If you're younger here, I would say 40 and below, maybe a little older, but maybe you're new to the church and so you're younger in the faith because of that, even though you're older. I'll say this as kindly as I can say this. If you do not have older people Speaking into your life, you are a fool. You are a fool. If you are older and you are not speaking into the lives of younger people and you call yourself a Christian, you are being disobedient to the call that God has on your life. And if you're in the middle, I would just say to you this, I'm about to hit 40 and I realize at that age how little I know. 
I thought I knew so much at 20 and 30. I know nothing. And there are people in our church who have been walking with the Lord for a long time. And I feel like in those who are in the middle, we have this opportunity because we're in between generations to kind of bridge the gap and to say, hey, we need to be learning here. And just a beautiful picture that might be. Oh, that we would care, that we would get this, that we would see how our culture has deceived us and that we would not be conformed to the patterns of the world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind and that by people taking this seriously, God's church would grow and flourish and be healthy for generations to come. That's the desire. I'm gonna invite my friend John Smith to come and he's gonna pray. He's, he's um, a bit older than I am and he's been a member of this church for 35 years. And I just thought it'd be fitting. I know his heart is for this, if he would pray. And I'll just say this before he prays. The motivation for this comes from realizing the treasure we have in Christ. And even when I feel like the people around me may not be worth it, the idea of the glory of God increasing because I invest in others, there is nothing worth more than that. John, if you would lead us in prayer, please. Would you pray with me, church? Heavenly Father, we have just heard your word powerfully proclaimed. And Lord, I sense that you are laying out before us a shift. And Father, I pray that we would be alert to what you are teaching us through God's word and that we learn to become a part of what it is that you want to do here. Father, help us not to get in the way of the work that you would have us to do here. Heavenly Father, I would ask that we would take the words that we have heard today and internalize them and pray over them and that we would consider what our part in this vision would be, that we can powerfully contribute to your work here that we not impede or get in the way of the advancement of your church and the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to take the words that we have heard and turn them into action, to discover what it is you would have each and every one of us in this room to do. Father, I sense that I need to identify my paradigms and shift some and get rid of others. Father, break on me what I need to do to change, what I need to do to embrace all generations. You love all. So help us not to shun any or to compartmentalize any, but Father, help us to truly become one in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray earnestly that each and every one of us will examine ourselves, apply your word to our life, and do whatever we need to do to glorify you and your kingdom. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.